0: to the next episode of What Works and What Works is from UCL Powell's Equality and Diversity Committee and we are talking to different people within the Powell's scientific community about their life and their work and how they manage life and they manage work and I'm really delighted today to be introducing Professor Essie Fidding. Um, there's an old Morrissey song that says we hate it when our friends become successful (laughs) and one of the things that's really, really nice about being in academia is kind of people you bump into at different points in your life and I remember Essie being a very new person when the ICM first started and now it's fantastic that she's actually here as one of the more um, established and important academics within UCL doing really interesting work, so Essie hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really we can take this whichever way you want but I would be interested in knowing if you can think of anything that you what what first made you is when you were younger what first made you interested in science can you remember a time when you thought that's what I'd like to do for a living something that kind of caught your interest
1: not really I think I ended up uh, doing psychology half accidentally um I uh, moved to UK I wanted to start an undergrad education. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I even toyed with the idea of doing architecture, but I also was interested in psychology, um, and I decided to apply for psychology undergrad, knowing very little about what the program actually contained. Um, It was different from what I expected. There was a lot more statistics for starters, uh, which I found I actually quite enjoyed. Um, and instead of just covering clinical psychology type of topics which I think was my understanding of psychology beforehand there were also sorts of fascinating reasons about attention and memory so I very quickly got hooked but I sort of mm. meandered into psychology semi-accidentally so I didn't start the course thinking oh, I want to be a psychologist yeah. or I want to be a scientist
0: and Where did you do psychology?
1: So I did my undergrad at UCL Oh wow! Yes and uh, then thought somewhat misguidedly I think that I might want to go into clinical after the course Uh, so I applied for a research assistant uh, position at the Institute of Cognitive uh, Neuroscience with James Blair and Otto Frith which is I think when we first met and um, after doing this job for two years I thought oh research is much more fascinating so then I applied for a PhD program Mm. in King's College London they had just started a new program combining social, genetic and developmental psychiatrists. I thought this was very interesting, bringing lots of different strands of research together. It was a four-year MRC program. I got on it um, and I did my PhD there with Francesca Happy and then did a postdoc there with Robert Plowman and then I came back to
0: UCL and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. And then, can we just go a little bit deeper? So the research that you were doing when you were working with James... That was pretty full on, wasn't it? I can because I remember that James wasn't James Blair wasn't here at the ICN all that long. Uh, he got, got whipped off to America quite quickly. But it was the first sort of research I'd come across looking at psychopathy from a kind of cognitive neuroscience background.
1: Yes. So we we went to prisons
0: and special hospitals and collected
1: data on murderers um, and essentially we were interested in whether there was a difference between those who had psychopathy and those who didn't in how they process uh, emotions and uh, their attention to emotions and essentially I spent two years traveling to various prisons
0: collecting (laughs) data from people who had killed somebody. So that's that can't have been I can't have been easy it must have been literally been quite hard work I mean any kind of testing that takes you around the country testing is already quite hard work but the actual i mean going into prisons and that that you were i think um to start with it
1: seemed quite heavy and i remember the first ever testing session i had was with somebody who was sitting a long sentence for murdering somebody and i couldn't get the skin conductance equipment to work um and i was faffing around with the little uh, sensors that you were meant to put on the fingers and computer and trying to get it to record and it just wasn't coming up and I was getting very nervous because I'm thinking I'm here with somebody who's killed someone and nothing is working (laughs) so I apologized profusely and this man said it's all right love I've got 18 years which didn't exactly reassure me at the time Um, but after that first slightly tricky session it became more routine and actually by the end of it the most tricky part was the travel and lugging the heavy equipment yeah Um, the testing became very routine I mean these were interesting characters but actually Uh, some of them could also be quite dull and if I had had a heavy lunch I was liable to nearly falling asleep during testing sessions so the the sort of being in a novel situation and it being uh, slightly odd sitting in a room with somebody who who has been very violent that sort of wears off very quickly and they have no reason to be unpleasant to you and these are not individuals who are mentally ill in a way that that they would be seeing things or hearing things so I didn't Mm. ever feel unsafe.
0: And I wondered if you could just very quickly comment on the what you mean when you talk about psychopathy in this context. Because I think my impression is it's a phrase that's kind of got picked up and is applied very generally in the in the wider kind of community. Um, and I just wondered if you could just say exactly what 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 it was that you were studying in that context. Because I think sometimes it. The, sort of the, common under, the the lay understanding yes, isn't quite actually the Yes, there are all, sorts of, the
1: yes, there are all yeah. sorts of, you know some people hear the word and think of serial killers now there are some serial killer killers that are psychopaths but obviously not all psychopaths are serial killers, some people think it means extreme antisociality, but it's more than that, mm-hmm. it's extreme antisocial behaviour coupled with this complete incapacity to feel empathy for other people and guilt for what you've um, done So essentially, these are a specific type of offender. Uh, We can characterize them using standardized instruments that have been well-validated. There are uh, these sorts of traits that occur in a continuum in a typical population as well. And I think given some of the recent politicians in UK and US, people uh, sort of have tended to to start diagnosing from a distance and certainly we have we can see people in public domain who have higher levels of these sorts of uh, features, who have manifest lack of empathy, who have manifest lack of guilt, who are happy to manipulate and con other people. So because the traits occur in a continuum, you may have colleagues or you may know of someone or there may be someone in a public eye who has higher levels of these traits. But in order for you to have a diagnosis of criminal psychopathy, you have to have behavioural problems that started very early in life. Mm. Uh, you have to have this profound lack of empathy and guilt that has manifested across different situations for a long period of time. You
0: have to have quite a prolific criminal record. So it's the offending really is the thing that makes a difference here. You're seeing people who from the outset, you know, have always been behaving in a way that's taken them, you know, it's called conduct disorders. The, that's not conduct disorder, it's an abstract Diagnosis yeah. is it, it means you've done things that you mean are...
1: It means you've done things, and it's not really the offending that makes the difference because there are other people who offend and who don't have the psychopathic features, but it's the combination of, of the two things yeah. that would get you a diagnosis of psychopathy. Now, we might argue that somebody who has very high levels of uh, mercenary behavior, who doesn't empathize with others, who doesn't have any guilt and who manages to stay on the right side of the law is still antisocial and unpleasant, Mm. just not in a way that gets them convicted. So in a way, you might want to call them a psychopath, but you would be on a thin ground in terms of actually diagnosing them if they don't have the prolific criminal record.
0: understand. Thank you. Thank you. Um, What was it like doing the PhD at King's, having been at UCL? I really enjoyed it. It was a great... uh,
1: set up where you had people from lots of different research traditions so I got exposed to behavior genetic research I got exposed to really good developmental research Mm. um, and some neuroscience and and cognitive research as well and people were really trying to think how to bring the different methods together in order to triangulate on understanding a problem and I really liked that I thought that no single method on its own uh, is going to give you all the answers particularly when we think about really complex clinical problems Mm. so i i i thought that was an excellent program uh it's still ongoing and i think it's produced lots of brilliant discoveries and brilliant scientists i think it's a testament to
0: the approach and it works. genetics work that was going on in King's and the IOP seemed to be it was quite different from the sort of stuff that you saw at UCL and it seemed to have a um, something I'm I'm trying to look for better phrase. somewhat ahead of its time in terms of you know arguing for an importance of genetics I mean ahead of having the kind of genetic techniques to ask some of the questions do you think that's something that's really kind of paid off they kind of Robert Plowman in particular was taking that furrow that you know 30 years ago seemed quite out there to be sort of saying now that we have to look at there are important genetic contributions
1: yes i think ucl has been brilliant in doing work on single gene disorders in particular absolutely fabulous work in in that area the work at king's was more focusing on what we call polygenic traits so traits for which there isn't a single gene that influences the outcome but instead we think we're talking about multiple genes that each Mm -hmm. increase the risk a little bit in combination with um, environmental factors. Mm. So the studies that were set up at King's were really set up to understand this common variation, uh, this slightly increased risk due to genetics, how that might interplay with environmental factors. And some of the really cool novel research was uh, that was taking place that was demonstrating actually many of the social environmental factors um, that we study actually have a genetic component. Which mm. if you think about it isn't surprising because you have two or more people in a social interaction and each of these people brings their genetic traits and dispositions to this interaction, which can then be interpreted in multiple ways depending on mm. you know how you how you are biased to perceiving the situation. And I think that the work they do there is really, really neat and important. Mm. And I think what we uh we have a as a sort of a strong suit in UCL is our extremely strong cognitive neuroscience and I my sort of dream is to try and get these two areas of research coming together to better understand how individuals essentially yeah. are active creators of their own social environments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing it's not like two abstract
1: things being added together, is it? You no. actually the... And you see, I mean it's a little bit like the work we've collaborated on on laughter perception in boys with conduct disorder who don't essentially seem to have the same emotional response to other people's laughter, don't seem to have the same kind of motor impetus to join in with other people. And laughter is something that joins us together, makes us Mm. feel like we belong and helps with social affiliation. Now, if for both probably genetic and environmental reasons, you react to and perceive that laughter in a different way, it means that you are going to have very different social interactions from your peers and that's going to shape your development and Absolutely. your interactions with yeah. other people.
0: So, um, how did you make the move? Because you've got this amazing lab now asking these really interesting questions about sort of exactly, this you know, not just looking at psychopathy, but looking at boys who are at risk, looking at people actually on the progression towards this possible outcome. Um, <clears throat> How did you kind of start to put that together? So you've got the PhD, you've done some work in psychopathy, you then do a PhD at King's. How did you move that forward? You said you did a fellowship.
1: Yes, so I did. My PhD was on on cognitive correlates of conduct problems um, and ADHD, actually. And then my post-doc was on doing um, behaviour genetic work on different types of conduct problems and how they relate to... um, other disorders and what did you find there so i we for instance we found that there was a strong genetic overlap between the traits that predispose you to psychopathy and 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 antisocial behavior more overtly Uh, we also looked at antisocial behavior in relation to parenting over time in a longitudinal design and showed that there were genetic child effects that evoked bad parenting, but there was also bad parenting that uh, influenced child behavior over time. So there were these interesting really dynamic, slacker, dynamic yeah. uh, uh, social relationships over time. Uh, some later work we did looking at genetic contributions to autism and risk for psychopathy. And we found that although both conditions are very strongly heritable, there's hardly any genetic overlap. So that's very interesting Um, because Mm -hmm. it suggests that even though both disorders are characterized by social difficulties, the origins of those social difficulties is is very different. We already knew from earlier work that the neurocognitive presentation was very different. So those on the autism spectrum have difficulty in understanding other minds, but they can feel or resonate with other people's feelings. And individuals at risk for psychopathy are exactly the opposite. They can understand what someone is thinking but they don't resonate with their feelings which Mm. in fact makes you a very good manipulator of other people (laughs) so that was the sort of work that we were doing early on and then a position came up at ucl that i applied for and got um after my esrc sort of postdoc fellowship and i've been here ever since what was it like coming back It was a bit odd and I, (laughs) i i still go to um staff meetings with some people who taught me on my undergrad and feel
0: like I should not be there. <laughs> I get that because I did my PhD here, you know, twenty million years ago. And I've, I can't get quite get past that. There are still people who interviewed me or supervised me, and I'm like, "Yes, this is, this is just strange." But they've
1: all been very lovely. So the feeling is my feeling of imposter is <laughs> you know, yes. not because these people have in any way made me feel unwelcome.
0: No, absolutely. So did you come
1: back as a lecturer? I came back as a lecturer, and interestingly, Amon McCrory who had been at ICN at the same time as myself. He had done his PhD with Frith, had gone on to do clinical training and had also come back to UCL as a new lecturer. And we were good friends and we talked about our respective research interests, realized Mm -hmm. there was quite a lot of overlap. Uh, He wanted to understand the impact of childhood maltreatment on cognitive development. Of course, a lot of kids with conduct problems have these sorts of experiences. I was interested in understanding the gene environment interplay mm. um, and we started talking we ended up writing two grants we got them both and sort of almost by accident ended up setting up a research group together which we've run together since 2016
0: things that i really like about uh, working in science is the the kind of collaborations that one has it's it's a joy to me but i think it your work with Eamon seems to be a really beautiful example of how you can build something that's got like bigger than the sum of its parts yes. you've already got really really excellent science and then you bring this together and you get a lot more than just those things individually
1: no, absolutely and i think we we think about things in a fairly similar way he's the only person I can sit down and write together with which is very bizarre Um, and we work in the same pace we get each other but at the same time we bring different things to the table as well I've got a stronger grounding on the kind of genetics and and biological side he's a clinician he's got excellent understanding of the social environment and I think that we can really feed into each other's work that
0: way that's amazing and Oh, and it's also extremely positive. So I've just got two quick questions I'd like to pick up on that I hadn't thought about before. But first of all, um, h- how do you how do you find writing together? Because one of my favourite things are the people I can sit down with and write a paper with, and as you said, it's not very many people. No. How how do you find actually managing that? Is it a, is it a thing that you can kind of make time for? How do you? No. So we we make we have a half a day a week
1: at least, which is pretty much sacrosanct, where we don't book any meetings yeah. and we sit down in front of computer. And we write whichever, you know, someone, we've got a grant going on or paper going on. And uh, we divide the time very equitably Mm. with each of our priorities. And because we think at the same speed and we write in a very similar way, we often sort of find that we're trying to find the right sentence and then we come up with the same sentence at the same time. Or the other person says something and the other person thinks, "No, it's not quite right. It's not quite sharp enough." And we're quite brutal, yeah, uh, but in a nice way. And yeah. neither of us is very sensitive, so it works really swiftly. Yeah. And actually, we write quicker together than we would write separately. Yeah. So That's it's-
0: brilliant. And more generally, how do you how like any relationship? You know, emotional relationships as well. It's you don't take these things for granted. You work at a collaboration. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you do to keep it working?
1: Well, I think we are. Bizarrely lucky in that I think we're genuinely the people who annoy each other the least in the world. I mean, he annoys me a lot less than my husband. <laughs> it probably helps that I don't have to live with him. <laughs> and he says the same thing, in, in, you know, um, in relation to me and, and his own husband. I call him my scientific husband, and yeah. I have his <laughs> husband's permission to do so. Um, but we, we genuinely have not had many disagreements over the years, and the few that we have had we have been able to sort out immediately up front and I think it's been quite easy because both of us value to collaboration so when we've discussed the disagreement Mm. I think the primary anxiety is that it doesn't sabotage a really good working relationship so it has actually been really easy to Mm. hash out and we've got different I think we have some different temperamental qualities which also uh, help Uh, Eamon is a lot more considered and um has probably a bigger frontal lobe when it comes to blurting things out um but it's maybe sometimes a bit cautious i he he can rein me back when i need Mm. to be reined back and i can sometimes push him out there a little bit when he needs it and i think it seems to work quite well
0: it's brilliant and the can you just i mean obviously you've got a huge amount going on but so you you've kind of got this very interesting research program where you're looking at Development is that first yes. saying resilience. You could explain a bit yeah. more
1: about that. So we, we're looking at both uh, psychiatric risk and also resilience um, in the face of biological vulnerabilities and also mm. environmental vulnerabilities. So we've got essentially two strands of research in the group. One looks at development of antisocial behavior disorders, both development of developmental risk for psychopathy, but also developmental risk for impulsive antisocial behavior. We combine different methodologies such as twin study designs, molecular genetic designs, imaging, uh, behavioral experimental work um, to do that. And the other strand looks at neurocognitive consequences of childhood maltreatment. Mm. So how maltreatment experience calibrates your brain development in a way that then makes you be at higher risk for developing mm. psychiatric disorders later on. So Aim and I together have developed... Uh, a theory called latent vulnerability, which essentially um, uh, describes the fact that children who, who live in these sorts of really unfortunate circumstances have to adapt to those circumstances. So if you live in a family that is characterized by violence, it pays to be vigilant to that violence. So you may develop bias to threat stimuli, mm. and we can see this in behavioral paradigms, we can see this in, in imaging paradigms. And that's very adaptive for the environment where you grew up with but it's not going to be adaptive when you go out to the wider world when you're at school you're not going to be able to concentrate on learning if you're hypervigilant to threat your social interactions might derail mm. if you're hypervigilant to threat and over time that can lead to social thinning because if you react in a hostile way or in a scared way your social interactions are more difficult people mm. feel less likely to Uh, sort of want to hang out with you and and over time the very people who are most vulnerable are actually least likely to be able to elicit social support and that may over time then manifest as a psychiatric vulnerability now of course there are also a number of children who don't develop psychiatric disorders despite these really horrific childhood experiences and that's interesting as well I mean, what is different about these children you know is do they have uh natural information processing strengths that help counteract the impact of the childhood maltreatment and help them elicit social support and these are the kind of dynamics that we're trying to understand
0: Mm -hmm. and this is not easy doing this is it i mean i know no one ever said this is going to be easy but this is like a particularly difficult challenge to set yourself what are some of the ways that you manage that uh so I suppose
1: you allude to the fact that these are very tricky populations to
0: recruit. It's hard hard work to do, isn't it? I mean, it's not simple to say, it's easy to say, well, we will study children who are, but how how do you even start accessing those populations? So you have to, you know, we recruit children from special schools,
1: uh, mainly for the antisocial behaviour strand of our research, because sadly these kids don't often get uh, referred to clinics, even though they would meet clinical diagnosis. So we recruit from the special school settings. We've got very good relationships with the schools and teachers and parents and the children themselves. So that's helpful. And for the maltreatment strand of research, uh, EAMON has done amazing work, essentially getting social services on board. So we've got independent records of the maltreatment Mm. history rather than relying on self-report but it is slow, slow work and we've yeah. got a really amazing team of people who work very hard and go to coffee mornings with social workers and yeah. and uh, make sure that if the families need accompanying to testing session, they will go and pick them up and it is very, very, very slow going, yeah. collecting the data, it's not like um, you know collecting
0: data for 35 undergrads you can do in a week if you're lucky No, and I guess when you get families in for testing, you can't there can't be any margin for error, you can't You've done so much to get the people around to actually collect data. You you must have to, you must have an amazing team, I guess, to just be able to be absolutely certain this is going to work. Now and we're here, it's yeah, going to run. They're
1: absolutely brilliant. And sometimes it doesn't work, and and that is something that you know we factor into all of our uh, grant budgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, about ten percent dropout. Just you know, people don't turn up because yep. I don't know someone was arrested for knife crime that morning so now they can't come to the testing session yeah. and you you just
0: have to anticipate that yeah and how do you find um because it's di- i love psychology i love working in psychology but it can be difficult sometimes to actually um get psychologists to engage with some with, with complex issues you know multifactorial yeah. are you are you, fi- are you finding it uh, I'm gonna to have to edit out my incredible inability to ask this question, but the um, how do you find actually taking these papers through to publication? Because this it's a complex story, and yes. sometimes people want things to be simple, and they're not.
1: Yes, well, I think the um, I th- I I think the community who work on the same issues, if you go to more specialist journals, knows these issues, yeah. and as long as you discuss custom in a balanced way and you don't try to overclaim. I think our overall understanding of it I think the trickier bit is sometimes if you submit to more general science journals to how to communicate it in a way that mm. you have a story that is easy for general science audience to digest but which doesn't yeah. oversimplify things so that that can be that's a challenge tricky and I think I've also found it sometimes tricky collaborating with colleagues who do research on healthy adults who might have some interesting paradigms and you then work on translating the paradigms for children and the colleagues say well you know we absolutely need 45 minutes of data collection you just (laughs) think well you might need it but you won't get it from these children it won't be any good so you need to try and get as much signal as you can from a paradigm that is usually maximum 15 minutes because otherwise you've lost your participants and if you only collect data on that very unrepresentative group who can sit through a forty-five minute experience experiment, you will mm. not get data
0: that is representative of the population that you try to understand. Yeah, and something else uh, before we move on that I was, I was struck by going to a talk years ago by a speech and language therapist who worked at um, uh, Surrey University, and she was working with offenders, looking at their young offenders, first-time young offenders, looking at their uh, communication skills and finding. Phenomenal levels of undiagnosed communication Absolutely. problems. and But she was finding it then very hard to get her work funded because it wasn't seen as a clinical problem. And she was saying, these, and they're mostly boys, if they get picked up when they're in primary school, then there's a chance they will have some access yes. to some kind of therapy. It tends to be treated as a conduct problem once you're in secondary school and you yes. are directed via, let's say, a different route. Are you finding that... Because you seem to be really challenging this. Well... I do think it's it's objectively hard to get this sort of work funded. Mm.
1: Uh, MQ, um, which is the mental health charity, published a report on funding that has gone to mental health research, which is hugely lacking behind any other kind of health research. But then it broke down the funding within the mental health research. And conduct disorder, I think got something like two percent of the pie Mm -hmm. and this is one of the most common reasons for referral for child and adolescent mental health services we've got an enormous cost burden of offending Uh, so this is not a minor problem um, but it is underfunded given the scale of the problem so I don't think that that colleague was wrong in their perception and it's often very hard to situate Uh, The funding, you also get people concerned about stigmatising children, which is something that I have very little patience for, because I'm thinking that's an easy sort of concern to lob off when you sit in the comfort of your own armchair and you don't have to work with these children day in, day out. It's a reason not to do anything, isn't it? It is, Um, but actually, if we want to help these children, we do have to be able to define a condition. Obviously, you have to do things sensitively. You don't give feedback on individual children to settings where you don't know what is going to be done about the feedback. But at the same time, this idea that you shouldn't do research in order not to stigmatize people, I think is a, I've, I feel it's a huge cop-out that is actually failing these really vulnerable children yeah. and their families.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations, because it's an amazing set of work, amazing body of work, and I'm really thrilled to hear that it's built on such a strong kind of collaborative program. It's brilliant. Can we talk a bit about the other side of life, which is everything else that's also going on? Um, So you have, you you mentioned your husband. (laughs) Who is very lovely, even though he annoys me more than Eamon. I mean, partly because I have to live together with him and take the trash out with him and all the rest of it, which I don't have to do with Eamon. So how, um, you know, if you're comfortable talking about it, when did you get married? So I got married in 2006, um, and our first child,
1: Ava, was born in 2007,
0: Where were you in your career then? So,
1: I was still a lecturer, but I submitted my promotion application from maternity leave and I was promoted to reader a year after Ava was born. Um, Simply because that's how the promotion cycle takes, so I submitted the materials, I think, literally a few months after she was born and then that promotion came through. Myla was born in 2010 uh, and he was born two months prematurely with a huge tumour. So he's oh. a great Ormond Street baby. And he's another one who coincides with promotion application going in a <laughs> few months later. And um, and also, I also got that promotion. So Yusil has been very, very good to me and very supportive. Um, and I have got another half who is actually incredibly hands-on. So we definitely do childcare um, as a properly divided yeah. task
0: I'm going to come back to childcare in a second but some specific questions about maternity leave because how, how sure. did you find that I accept that with your son it must have been quite different but the um, did, I mean it's like a s- stupid thing to say but I think sometimes in academia it's pretty hard to really get a maternity leave yes. by, which would be maternity leave by many people's standard, because a lot yes. of PhD students don't go yes. away and you know the lab is still existing so yes. you um, but also you have a bit of sort of flexibility sometimes when yes. you're coming back so how, how did you find that? Well, I, for me, the experience was
1: hugely positive both times around. I gave all my students an option to transfer to somebody else or to continue in my supervision, but they had to be willing to come to my home for supervision and cope with the fact that I'm feeding a child, um, which they all chose to do. I, but as a result, I was able to accumulate these keeping in touch days, which I could add to the end of my maternity leave. So that meant that I got a little bit more time Um, At home with the babies Um, I thought that coming back from maternity leave was made easier because of the teaching sabbatical um, that UCL offered so on the whole I felt hugely supportive and particularly with my son because I of course had to start my maternity leave uh, nearly two months before I had anticipated and Mm. colleagues were incredibly supportive and rallied around and came and saw us when we were at Great Ormond Street and and took over duties that sort of fell into their lap earlier than they expected. And I was never made to feel that there was anything I needed to worry about. Mm. Um, if anything, I was sort of told to keep away and people would <laughs> sort it out for me. So I, I had a very positive experience both times yeah. around.
0: And how do you... um, I mean, how, how, What works for you in terms of managing life and work because it is you know some academia is one of those jobs which will just expand to fill yes and And being a parent will also expand to fill the space and time available what works for you well i actually think for me
1: constitutionally i think academia suits me quite well because i don't know that i would be very good with a nine-to-five job I enjoy thinking about things so it doesn't seem like a chore most of the time when I have to go back to uh, looking at some paper even after kids Mm. have gone to bed and I think that the flexibility that the academia affords in terms of you can go and see that Christmas pay without having to necessarily make arrangements three weeks in advance as long as you know you're not reneging on your teaching and administrative commitments I think that flexibility has worked out really well for me yeah um i'm also lucky in that my husband can work flexibly so between both of us being able to be flexible and also outsourcing a bunch of the childcare, we've managed to do it reasonably well yeah. and with some resemblance of sanity particularly when the kids <laughs> were small even though neither of us has parents living close by
0: mm. but certainly um my partner is very uh, was was almost offended at the thought that he might not want to make major contributions to childcare. You know, yes. and it's it's a really positive thing. Actually, I think there's a there's a a common stereotype that uh, no man would touch childcare if he didn't possibly make him. And I don't, and like a lot of people, really, you know, it, it's a it's a fantastic thing. I I sort of assumed that being a parent was um, like one of those. My father used to use the phrase, or oh, um, you will get your reward in heaven, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you might be a trial at the time, but because ennobling in some greater good later in your life. And of course, it's it's wonderful. It's great being a parent. It's one. It's yeah. a real honour and joy to be around your babies and your children. And um, you know, why wouldn't you, it's? Why wouldn't you want to be part of that? You know, everyone. Exactly. You know, Both members of the parents god willing they're both around is it's a it's a joy it's a wonderful thing so it's a really you know it's always been positive experience for me the kind of you know dealing with childcare is a thing you need to think about but actually in and of itself it's it's a good thing
1: and i i mean i i think um i i found them surprisingly interesting when they were small because i've never been a big baby person but once they're your own they're surprisingly interesting (laughs) but i also am finding it delightful as they grow up and Mm. you can have interesting conversations with them and yeah go and see interesting things with them and reflect about it so as as they get older I, I find myself enjoying it more and more yeah so it probably helps that you get a full night's sleep
0: <laughs> <laughs> only very recently
1: yeah <laughs> but yes yeah. That, that definitely doesn't well, it's always yes. a better place and, yeah. and some winks <laughs>
0: Is, is there anything else that you'd like to say about being a working parent? You don't have to, you've said loads, but is there anything else you'd like to add? I think, I mean, one thing that I always tell junior
1: people in my group who haven't had children yet is to really, really think about, before having the children, think about how they're going to make the childcare as equitable as possible. And what really concerns me more often in relation to young women than young men is that there seems to be this inherent assumption that the woman will cut cut back on their work and no one despite their multiple degrees and PhDs seems to think about the impact of that on their pensions on their career progression on the dynamics of their relationship, particularly in a kind of demographic that we are in where people are highly educated and you mm. often get together with somebody because that person is very interesting and you have, you're have interested in what they do, they're interested in what you do. What's going to happen if one of you scales back hugely yeah. and the other one just keeps going ahead with always having a priority? I think that that can have a really, really toxic impact on the couple dynamics. risk with your pension and with your career progression i mean if you're very lucky you will be with that person uh with for the rest of your life but you don't know you know relationships don't always work out someone may pass away and and i just always think particularly in the kind of career that we are in where there is uh room to be flexible i think it's a very short time when kids are small even if it's a bit of a financial sacrifice for both of you to 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 keep in there with Mm. your careers i really think it's so
0: worth yeah. doing. And it, it, it's such a short period of your life, actually. it's really yes. It feels like forever at the time, yes. but it's, it, it's tiny. It's more for such a short amount of time. Absolutely. Um, would you be okay if I ask you some questions about life outside of science and family? Sure. So um, <laughs> you've got a lot going on. You're a fantastic scientist, and you're doing amazing work, and you're also... A <laughs> parents who's working very hard uh of two fantastic kids. What else do you cuz I know, you know, there there are things that there are bits of your life that are not science that are not being a parent. What else do you like to do? I know that you do some fairly amazing things. No I well I do boring things as well. I I mean I love running.
1: I love yoga. I love uh doing weights. So those are the kind of things that I I do to Look, up, I call them looking after my mental health I think it's yep. really, I get out of my head when I go for a long run and I, I yep. usually listen to opera when I go running which is maybe a bit unusual but I love it <laughs> um, I also love cooking and love having people over and entertaining I read a mm. huge amount of, I read work stuff but I also uh, read a huge amount of uh, fiction and yes I love going to uh, to see art, I love going mm. to concerts, I used to go and go to opera before i had children and it's not my other house cup of tea so once we had children when we managed to get out of the house we we didn't go and do something that he didn't enjoy but then um a few years ago i thought well i can go on my own especially now that the children are a bit older so i've been going to opera on my own quite a lot which i actually prefer
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's something we did um we did a thing on voices a couple of years ago at the Royal Society, and part of that we were scanning, doing dynamic imaging with different sorts of voice artists, and someone I've known for years who does opera singing, um, I'd never really heard her sing, and she just stood at one side of the Putney opera, you know, sorry, not opera, but the Putney operating suite, phonological error there, yeah. um, and started singing, and it was absolutely extraordinary, it was just the, the the sheer scale of the sound she yes. was making, and it was an absolutely beautiful sound, but it was also almost totally overwhelming. Yes. Just an issuing forth from someone you've known for years. She just starts doing it. With but this it's huge voice. Yeah. yeah. It's like some incredible it's an, it is. Instru- it's an instrument Absolute. it's not a it, yeah. it,
1: and this is i think when when people say it sounds so weird it's weird singing i'm thinking well it's it's an instrument yeah. you know you have to think of it as another
0: instrument absolutely the the instrument the for the, yes. the only one the only instrument that can die it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> quite extraordinary um i and oh no, i just to second what you say I, I i mean i the only um Kind of wisdom that's come to me with age is that it's really worth making time in the day to do the things that will make you feel better. And I do. I I get up horribly early in the morning just so I can get some exercise because everything will be better. The whole day will be better. I would enjoy staying in bed for another hour, but I would feel better, and the whole day will be better if I get up and do. Yeah, no, I got up
1: early this morning and went to the gym for half an hour, and I'll do it even if I just have twenty minutes to go for a run. It's still better than than nothing and and i another thing again i think this is the when you get to a certain age <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> some bit of wisdom which is that if you just focus on one thing lovely as your your science might be um you will get the inevitable rejections and they are so much harder to take if that's the only thing you're doing because your whole identity is bound up uh, in the in the work and of course a lot of our identity is bound up on the work much more so than for most people because it's fascinating and it's interesting and it's something that we're hugely motivated and to yours, do it's yours, it's your thing it's you our it. thing, exactly yeah. but at the same time I think it's so important to have those things the friends, the family, the yeah. activities outside the work because when the inevitable unfair paper or grant rejections come, yeah. you are much less likely to be crushed by it and you, you can sort of go and take a deep breath, get a little bit angry, uh, yes. rewrite it, or or forget about it.
0: <laughs> I um, I, someone on Twitter was being very rude about one of my papers a couple of years ago, and um, I was on holiday, and he starts in these things, and I was standing in a queue for lunch with my family. And I saw a couple of ding, ding, and I replied. And then Tom went, "Oh God, what's going on?" And I said, "Oh, sorry." And then I thought, Do you know what? I'm on holiday, so yes. I just blocked him. And I'm like, Do you know what? I don't have to. This is this is great. It wasn't a particularly good criticism of my work anyway. So, yes. <laughs> and really, what what matters more than no, uh, this? Uh, being uh, here now matters more. Exactly. These are the good days. You know, this, I'm not going to be on my deathbed saying, so "I really wish I'd replied to that tweet." Quite. Wish I'd sent that down burning. You know? No, exactly. So it's and. Had I not been with my family, if I didn't have that, that had me what was going on, I would have just got caught up in a row. You, you would know, have gotten anything, sucked yeah. into the
1: hole. And, of yeah. course, in, in Twitter, there seemed to be... I mean, I was on Twitter and I left because... Not because I had any hugely negative personal experience, but I, to me, on balance, there were more negative things that yeah. I was witnessing than positive things and there were lots of positive things but i but i haven't really i personally haven't really missed it i have missed your tweets well i would imagine that's true for most people (laughs) but i I get some of some of that on facebook so that i'm not it's not complete cold turkey
0: it's true and i do sometimes i think there's legitimate questions to ask about the the sort of emotional feelings that you are left with having had these sorts of engagements it is mostly i mean i've the only way that I've I've stopped caring a lot less about what happens on Twitter and I just do what I want to do on Twitter and I, I see something stupid. you know what fine, go and be stupid. I don't care. you know yes. that's not why I'm here. And it does make it more manageable. but you're right, the, the, the tone of it going on around you sometimes like you're I, having I do, do sometimes think that
1: it, it has sort of unearthed the worst things about the humanity. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think that we may be learning an important lesson that actually, although it's great to have all these conversations you can eavesdrop eavesdrop onto. It's not a good thing. No one's benefiting from it. It's not good for us in the long term. So, Essie, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything else that you... Oh, one, la- one last thing I just really quickly wanted to ask you. We just zip past this right at the start. Of course, you are Finnish. I am. You are Finnish. How do you find it being in UK academia and are you ever tempted to, to try a life in Scandinavia, which has many, many advantages?
1: Um, I... I have found it quite nice in the UK academia. I think um, it's taken me some time to learn to moderate my directness in some occasions. And I'm probably, my, most of my colleagues would say, and you're not doing it that successfully. Um, but on the whole, I mean, I, I like the British academia. I think it's a fairly egalitarian system compared to a lot of other academic setups um, hierarchy is a lot more flat than when mm. you go to continental europe and i like that i think that's healthy and it's it's good i think there's a real culture of looking after uh, early career researchers here which is much better than again it's in most places in continental europe mm. um, and i think there's a great tradition of sort of debating things and doing it in a quite a robust but civil way which, yeah. I, which I also like um i miss Finland um, on occasion but I also miss England when I go home h- home to Finland so there are good bits in both places and I don't think I would want to be an academic in Finland uh, it's a much smaller setting um, so you'd be a kind of a big fish in a small pond which I'm mm. not sure would be as healthy as being a smaller fish in a bigger pond um, and also the academia there is a lot, lot more hierarchical it's the research is less well joined together and and Mm. although there are some uh, sort of pockets of excellence it's not overall as thriving as as it is here in in my area of research in particular so I'm not really tempted to go and Mm. work there but I do like going home
0: on holidays the the occasions I get to go it's absolutely delightful country And and I once saw an elk was <laughs> On your run. On my run, yeah. Everyone yes. said, Oh my god, you didn't try and talk to it, did you? Apparently apparently they're not all that friendly. No, they're so. not very friendly, <laughs> they're quite large. <laughs> Close shaves there. Thank you very much, Essie That was Thank really, you. really helpful. Thank you. I'm fascinating. Thank That's you so great. much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.